Once again, we're reading out of uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, beginning with verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander of the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because the Lord your God and, of, and because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The New Testament reading is from Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before me. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray for me as I pray for us. Let us pray together. Lord, I thank you for the privilege of 
being back in Amarillo and seeing so many friends and new folks. I thank you for this church. I thank you for Howard and Murray and Paul and Norman, this whole staff. I thank you for these elders. I thank you for the deacons here and for those who have prepared the meal. And now, Lord, speak to us and speak to me and all God's people said. Uh, I haven't preached in three years, and so I've had to work hard uh, to prepare, a little rusty. And as I was preparing for this message, I remembered that preachers never know how people are going to respond, especially when they fill in for the senior pastor. For instance, when I was a young associate at North Avenue Presbyterian Church in Atlanta, Reverend Cook Freeman was asked to fill in for Dr. Vernon Broyles, the senior pastor. And Cook was very nervous about this. And so on Sunday morning was out in front on the porch and was pacing back and forth when a taxi pulled up. Door swung open. This rather large elderly woman huffed and puffed and struggled to get out of the cab and stood there for a minute and looked up and down. North Avenue is on the corner of North Avenue and Peace Street Street in downtown Atlanta. And it has a series of pretty long steps up to the porch. And she saw this young man up on the porch and said, Sonny, help me up these steps. And Cook being the head of pastoral care, rushes down and huffs and puffs and works and struggles and gets her up to the top step, and they both stopped, and she thanked him, and then she said, Sonny, who's preaching today? <laughs> well, Cook realized she didn't know who he was or recognized him, and she, so he said, well, ma'am, uh, Reverend Cook Freeman is preaching today, and she said, Sonny, head me back down these steps. <laughs> So, ushers, please close the doors. (laughs) Used to play basketball at the Federal Penitentiary, and we were a trapped audience, and it was a good time. (laughs) And as I thought about what to do this morning, I've decided not to preach a normal sermon or a regular sermon. In fact, I'm going to do a pop quiz this morning. And for those of you who are new, you don't have to take it. But for those of you who were here when I was here, you've got to take it. And how I'm going to do it is I'm going to ask a series of 14 questions. And I want, and I'll ask the question, I'll pause, and some of you need to shout out, well, speak out the answer to each of the questions. I, it's a two-part test, okay? The first part is to test your basic knowledge of the Bible. And the second part is to test your relationship with the Lord, okay? Now, don't worry. Nobody's going to grade your answers. Nobody has to know, and no wives can answer for their husbands or (laughs) girlfriends answer for their boyfriends. Now, I tell you this because the Apostle Paul, in three different letters, says... Something to this effect. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says, Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. 
I hope we all know that physical exams can be very important for maintaining physical health. For instance, on Valentine's weekend, um, I took my wife, Sissy, to a very expensive restaurant in Greenville, South Carolina, which is 17 miles away from where we live. And we had a nice time together to celebrate uh, Valentine's ahead of time. And we were waiting for the bill, and I passed out. At least that's, I, that's what she said. Anyway, when I woke up, she was absolutely alarmed. And said, are you all right? Are you all right? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. And we walked a couple of blocks back to the car, and I was going to drive back. She said, you're not driving anywhere. I said, yeah, I am. I feel fine. She said, no, you're not. And I'm calling the doctor. I said, don't call the doctor. Well, she was terrified I had a stroke. And some of you know how terrifying that can be. And so she called my doctor, and he said, you don't let him drive, and you rush him straight to the emergency room. So then started a battery of examinations and tests till about five o'clock in the morning. They did everything. There's all this equipment they used and measuring instruments to do blood pressure and do heart rate. And they did an EKG and they did a CAT scan and x-ray. They did, used all these instruments to test me on the inside as to why the blood stopped going to my brain. I kept trying to convince him I swooned over my wife. But they didn't believe in that, and they could find no cause that evening, and so they sent me home and said, make an appointment with your doctor. And so very soon after that, I show up at my doctor's office, and he, he asks a series of questions like I'm going to ask you today. He then starts other tests. They hadn't run in the hospital. He wanted to know what they'd done. Went through all of that. He could find nothing. And so he decided, we've got to identify what causes the blood to stop flowing to, to your brain. And I didn't tell him how hard my head is. But anyway, he put me on a heart monitor for a month. Now, for you golfers, if you've ever had a heart monitor, it's not real fun playing golf with it on. But anyway, I go a month. And my doctor is very thorough in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And there was a little blip in terms of that month, in terms of the readout. He was a little concerned, so he calls a cardiologist and refers me to a cardiologist. So I go to the cardiologist, and he asks me, starts examining again, and asks me a series of questions. And the only test they had not run so far was a nuclear stress test. They put stuff in your vein, and then they put you on a treadmill to see what, where it flows. And I told him, I've just walked 18 mountain holes playing golf. I, I think I'm okay. He said, well, let's do this anyway. So he did it. He said, well, come back if you need me. And they could find no reason for the exam. But they used all these instruments and tests to actually relieve my wife. Uh, anxiety about me having a stroke, but it also helped me know that I'm in pretty good health. Well, I'm going to try to lead you through uh, a practical way to apply Paul's instruction about examining and testing yourselves. And the first is about um, your knowledge of the Bible. And some of you are going to blow this test away, okay? Number one, how many books are there in the Protestant Bible? 66. 
I use Protestant, but the Catholic Bible has more than that. Uh, what are the two main parts? Very good. See? See, Howard, I didn't do so bad in those 11 years here. Anyway, I think they knew all that before I got here. Uh, what's the first book in the Bible? Very good. What's the last book? Revelation. Revelation has no S. About whom is the New Testament written? Jesus. Written about Jesus. Name all four Gospels written about him. Very good. Who were Jesus' first four disciples? Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Uh, What was their business and what was their relationship? Fishermen, business partners, actually, and two sets of brothers. In John's account, what did Jesus promise to give his disciples after he ascended? Holy Spirit. Okay. After he rose, whom did he appear to first? Yeah, the women. Y'all remember that? Jesus told the women first and told them to proclaim it. Who wrote the book of Acts and what was his profession? No, Luke. (laughs) He was a doctor. I've got trick questions in here. That wasn't a trick question. This is a little more different. How many people were still following Jesus after he was crucified? Acts 1 tells. Anybody know? 120. Okay. Now, come back. Who wrote most of the New Testament letters? Paul. Um, Who wrote the last book and where was he when he wrote it? Island of Patmos, he was in, in exile. Okay? Now, in examining your basic knowledge of the Bible, do you need to take any corrective action? They did all those tests of me to see if I needed to take any corrective action relative to my blood to my brain. Do you need to take any corrective action? If you do, take it. Now, the next part of the examination may be a little tougher. But it's the most critical part concerning your eternal health. I'm going to guide you through two questions about the health of your relationship with Jesus. Question one, how well do you know Jesus? Okay? Question two, and I would never have thought in the past to ask this, but it's critically important. How well does Jesus know you? Now, the reason I ask that question is because Jesus himself says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Now he's talking about preachers. And in your name drive out demons. We're talking about exorcists. And in your name perform miracle, many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you Away from me, you evildoers. So, 
It is not only critically important that you know Jesus well, but that he knows you well. Now, part of this examination and testing yourself, some might be feeling a little uncomfortable. I've gone from preaching to meddling. Well, there was once a preacher who was very confident that he had preached one of the best sermons he could ever remember. It's like my Baptist friend in Opelika, Alabama, often in error, never in doubt. (laughs) This preacher was pleased and he was sure that he had done such a great job that when this little boy came up to him after the service and opened up his hand and offered him a double handful of change, the preacher knew exactly why he was doing it. But to be humble, he bent over and he said, Thank you, young lad. Why did you want to share this money with me? And the little boy just brightened up and said, Oh, my dad just told my mom that you're the poorest preacher he's ever heard, and I wanted to help you out. (laughs) So none of us needs to be overconfident about any of this. For the Lord may want to correct something in us that needs his attention that we've been ignoring. You see, I'm doing this because I've been examined and tested several times about the health of my relationship with Jesus. You'd think as a preacher that wouldn't happen, but I grew up in Purity Presbyterian Church in Chester, South Carolina. I cannot remember ever being asked about my relationship with Jesus. I remember when I joined the church, I, I was asked other questions, but nothing about how well do you know Jesus. In fact, the first time I can remember being tested and examined about that, I didn't realize that was what was going on at the time. It, my Sunday school teacher took a group of us to a Billy Graham crusade in Charlotte, North Carolina, and listening to Dr. Graham, I realized my relationship with Jesus was lacking. It hit me that I needed to take corrective action. And at the end, when he gave the invitation, I committed my life to Christ. And it might interest you, I've had several encounters with Dr. Graham since that time. Several years later, I was at a presidential prayer breakfast in Washington, D.C., and I saw him from a distance, and I heard him speak, and I heard him pray. And, and then later, I worked for his brother-in-law in Dallas, Texas, and he and Ruth came to have dinner with the staff on several occasions. I introduced myself to him, shook his hand, sat near him, listened to the conversation, took in what he was saying around the table. Later, I read several books by him, and there was articles in the newspaper that I would occasionally read. And then one summer, I was director of Montreat Youth Conference in Montreat, North Carolina, and Dr. Dr. Bell, his brother-in-law, surprised me and one of the speakers and drove us up the side of a mountain and wouldn't tell us where we were going. And we wound up at Dr. Graham's house on the side of this mountain. And I, they invited us in and sat us on the front porch overlooking the manor. And uh, Ruth brought us out Boston cream pie and sweet tea. That's something they do in the South regularly with mint in it. And I knew I was never going to have a chance like this again. So I pumped Dr. Graham with every question I could think of. 
And I still remember vividly two of his answers. And he set me so at ease that I said to him, Dr. Graham, I have to tell you that I felt abandoned when I went forward at the end of your meeting and then you left town and I didn't have a clue as to do what to do with my commitment to Christ. And he said, you know, that's amazing. I had the same experience when the person who led me to Christ moved away. I didn't tell him, but I thought, well, if it happened to you, why would you do it to me? (laughs) Now, you could... uh, you could test me about how well I know Dr. Graham. And I'd have to honestly say, not very well at all, and I don't think he would even remember me. The truth is, like with me and Dr. Graham, you can know a lot about Jesus. You can attend church. You can hear messages about him and from him. You can share a meal with him like we're going to do this morning. You can know a lot about him but not know him very well at all. And that was me. Now, let me be very clear. My main purpose in doing what I'm doing is to give you a practical way to apply Paul's challenge to examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves so you can decide for yourselves whether you need to take some corrective action, whether it's about the Bible or about Jesus. One way to measure the health of your relationship with Jesus is to compare what you are currently doing with what the first Disciples, the first Christians did to get to know Jesus well. First, the New Testament makes clear that every one of them heard John the Baptist's message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and they repented and committed to live their lives by what God says, even though they didn't know all of what God said. So the first thing is they repented. So when Jesus comes along and says, come follow me, I'll take, make you fishers of men, they were ready and they made the choice to turn away from the life they were living to follow Jesus and let him teach and train them to do God's will. And they teamed up and partnered with a few others to interact and learn from Jesus how to hear his instructions and put it into practice. So the fourth thing they did was they spent daily time with Jesus, interacting with him on a personal, intimate basis. For example, the New Testament describes how they would bring their questions to him and and they would take in his answers. And just like a desperate father said, each of them could say, I believe, help my unbelief, and Jesus did do that. Hear this, they did not hide their doubts and questions, but they opened up their hearts to Jesus so that he could get to know them well. And slowly they get to know him well. In fact, all of them could probably say, I'll say it my way, Jesus changed and trained me to do God's will. Fifth, in getting to know Jesus well, he told them about the Holy Spirit and 
that he would pour him out on them after he was ascended. And so they knew that promise from Jesus. And that the Holy Spirit would teach them and guide them after he left. And think about this. Because of their three-plus years with Jesus, and they got to know him so well, and he had gotten to know them so well, and they had experienced the Holy Spirit's guidance. Many years later, when their circumstances were filled with rejection and opposition and persecution, they ready to crawl what Jesus told them to do when it happened. And they did it and didn't bail out on Jesus when it was a horrible, horrible time in their life. In fact, they got to know Jesus so well that some of them, 30 years later, wrote down what they remember Jesus said and did so that others could get to know Jesus well and let Jesus know them well. And we read some of what they wrote this morning. By doing all of those things, they got to know Jesus so well and he got to know them so well that they experienced firsthand all the promised benefits Jesus gave them. And they became completely convinced that he really was God's son, the Messiah, and they wanted others to know him well as as well. So examine yourselves and test yourselves. Test what you're currently doing against the measuring rod of what they did to get to know Jesus well. The truth is we now live in a culture very similar to the culture of the first Christians that does not know Jesus well, does not promote him, does not live by his values. Compare what Jesus promised with what our culture promised. We read the Beatitudes. Jesus said in 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Many no longer believe there's a kingdom of heaven or any need to take any corrective action for which God would call them. Our culture promises that the world's benefits go to the rich, to the proud, to the confident, not to the poor in spirit. Matthew 4, 5 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. In contrast, our culture says the benefits goes to those who don't cry. I have a friend on the golf course who says, You can't cry in golf, so I scream. <laughs> We're trained. Keep it stiff of a lip. Don't let anyone see any weakness in you, even if you're hurting. Jesus promises in Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Our culture doesn't understand what he's talking about there at all. Meek in New Testament times sometimes referred to the loyal, faithful servant who always carried out the master's will. It was the character trait you wanted in your servant because he was always ready to carry out the master's instructions, and his will. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are ready to carry out God's will, always. In Matthew 5, 6, Jesus promises, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
for doing what is right before God, they will be satisfied. Think about it. Our culture fuels dissatisfaction. You know, our advertisements just bombard us. I know you need another house, you know, go Zillow or Zulo or whatever. You know, you're dissatisfied where you are. Get a new job. Put your uh, employment thing on this website. We are promised that the benefits go to those with an insatiable desire to be the best, to get to the top, and who are willing to climb over the others to get there. You know, as an aside, not everybody plays golf. Not everybody likes golf. I've begun playing and like it. But you know what I enjoy more is these young Christian golfers who stand around after they have finished cheering for their opponent and they want to stay to celebrate with them because they know Jesus well. Matthew 5, 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Think about our culture. It promises the benefits that go to those who show no mercy, who press forward to reach your goals and let no one get in your way. And the fact is, Jesus showed mercy to me and most of us in this room, and he continues to do it and forgive us when we don't deserve it and calls us to do the same. In Matthew 5, 8, it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Too many in our culture are convinced there's no God to see. Pay little or no attention to Jesus or God and being his servants. And Jesus makes clear in the New Testament, as the other writers do, that as we open up our hearts to him and let him do his deeper cleansing work, we will see God's amazing work of grace with our own eyes on the inside. I learned this the